Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. On this episode, we discuss some of the headlines from the week of October 18th, including a fall election averted for now. Anti-indigenous racism in Nova Scotia and La Fin for Le Chateau. Massive police reform in Peel, skirted justice for Abdiram and Abdi, and the NHL being ill-prepared for the HDA. And plenty more. So to kick off our politics segment, a fall election was almost called this week. The reason? The opposition led by the conservatives who wanted a special committee created to scrutinize the decision-making that led to the WE scandal. How did we get here? Well, the first thing we have to remember is that we're in a minority parliament situation, meaning that the governing party, in this case, the liberals, won more seats than any other party, but not more seats than all the other parties combined. And when this happens, the governing party no longer has control over committees that do important work, like providing oversight on how government is spending money for, um, I don't know, a billion dollar summer grant program. So the Conservatives successfully raised the concern of the program being awarded sole-sourced with the Ethics Commissioner, especially considering the fact that Trudeau and former Finance Minister Bill Morneau had ties to the WE charity. They pointed to ethics rules alluding to Trudeau and Morneau needing to recuse themselves from the decision. To be clear, though, when the Conservatives did this, all they cared about was that the government was about to get free marketing in front of thousands of Canadian kids, and they just couldn't have that. Which I don't get, because it's not like conservatives have any pull with young people nowadays anyway, but okay. Right. And by the way, the conservatives have no foot to stand on when it comes to ethics, considering they had over 70 violations when they were last in power. Some of them pretty serious, too. Anyway, that led to lots of back and forth between the ethics commissioner, the opposition, and the government. Not to mention a bruising in the polls for Trudeau because of what was coming out of the committee hearings on the issue which is why he shut down the work happening in committee through prorogation. And for those of you who need a primer on prorogation, we discussed that back on episode 17. The government, for their part, has said that they prorogued to chart a new path, considering what COVID was demanding of governments, not only in Canada, but the world over. Right. So so prorogation happened, then Parliament resumed. The Conservatives said, all right, now we want a, quote, anti-corruption committee created to look into we and the PM's mother and brother. The NDP basically said, nah, that that's reaching. We just want a committee that looks at COVID spending more broadly. And when it comes to we, we just want to know what Justin did, not his family. The government said, okay, opposition and NDP in particular, we hear you. How about a committee that does what the NDP wants, but instead of it being led by another party, it's led by, you guessed it, the government, which of course means the committee wouldn't have had as many teeth 
since the government could shut it down or redirect it at any time. What brought us to the brink of election is that the governing liberals made the vote for such a committee a matter of confidence, which I agree with, because who the hell do the conservatives think they are? (laughs) To label the committee an anti-corruption committee automatically implies that the government is corrupt. I mean, just imagine it. Months into winter, headlines reading, I don't know, Minister so-and-so was forced to testify in front of the anti-corruption committee. The government would look bad. I see. Mm-hmm. And while the NDP is saying that they they aren't friends to the Liberals, ultimately they decided they didn't need no smoke and voted to save the government from the Conservative motion. Green leader Annamie Paul, for her part, put out a statement urging the parties to cool their jets, calling the politics, quote, unwelcome drama. Instead, she said, quote, they should leave such games outside of Parliament and focus on the urgent needs of people in Canada. I asked members of Parliament to dial down the rhetoric which is not in keeping with the seriousness of this unprecedented moment so that we can get back to working on critical matters at hand. I hear that, girl. Yes, girl. (laughs) For the record, if the election were held today, the Liberals would likely win with a majority of 170 seats, according to trusted poll aggregator 338canada.com. Jumping to anti-Indigenous racism in Nova Scotia, this week we saw Nova Scotian fishermen show their ass by physically intimidating Micmac fishers and lighting their property on fire, including a lobster facility. Why? The Acadian fishers feel the Micmac shouldn't be fishing in the off-season to, quote, respect conservation efforts, except the Micmac do have a constitutional right to fish whenever the hell they want, since, you know, this was their land to begin with. And as far as conservation goes, the Micmac fish far less than settler fishers do. What made it worse is that the RCMP, who were supposed to be there to protect against violence, instead acted like absolute pylons, turning their head the other way as Indigenous people were attacked. This dispute is the latest in an escalating feud between Mi'kmaq fishermen and non-Indigenous commercial fishermen that began when the Sebaganegadi First Nation launched its own fishery in September during the off-season. The thing that I have seen coming up a lot in this investigation is that there are treaties that govern this region. Why are we not referring to the treaties that were established when settlers came? Right. And so let me let me actually give some, some context on that, right? In 1993, Micmac Fisher Donald Marshall Jr. was arrested for not having proper permits after he brought in a 463-pound catch of eel worth 787 bucks at that time. But he felt he had the right to fish despite not having permits since his people had been fishing there for thousands of years as per their treaty rights, like you said. He was right. And so after a long legal battle, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Micmac fishers, affirming their treaty right to fish for a, quote, moderate livelihood wherever and whenever they wanted. The problem is that there was no clarity on what, quote, moderate livelihood meant, which the court did on purpose so the matter would be resolved by government. But of course, it wasn't. There's also the reality that successive liberal and conservative governments have not only had the responsibility to define the rights of the Mi'kmaq, but also to educate white fishers on the rules of the game. And they haven't. And so now we have a situation where the lack of clarity is leading to violence. Bottom line, the government has said they're bringing both sides to the table to find a lasting solution. What they need to do, since they've placed so much value on reconciliation is be proactive in resolving these treaty issues and educating the public on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Oh, and for the record, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky defended the actions of her pylon RCMP officers. It's why Assembly of First Nations Chief Perry Bellagarde called for her resignation 
as did Jagmeet Singh. Beligardi said he wants an RCMP commissioner that cares about public safety, but also combating racism. I felt that. 100%. Jumping to the Canadian economy, la fin for Le Chateau. While there wasn't too much economic news this week, there was still something worth discussing. Le Chateau is closing up shop. C'est fini. The Montreal-based fashion chain with 123 locations across Canada and 1,400 employees said Friday that it applied for protection from its creditors so it can start selling off its assets. For perspective, in the three-month period leading up to July 25th, the company only earned $14.7 million in sales compared to $50 million in the same period last year. As of July, the company says it had about $118 million in assets, which sounds great until you hear that they had $201 million in liabilities. As for why this is happening, COVID. Well, for the most part. I mean, it's true that the company had seen share of troubles over the years and was already in decline. But the reality is that the core of their business was holiday party and occasion wear, which, of course, no one is buying right now. This is really sad news for the economy, and it does take us back to what we advocated for last week. Welfare for small and medium-sized businesses through an excess profits tax levied on major retailers like Amazon. Now... Moving into black, blackity black news, we got some interesting feedback from one of you, our listeners, and we wanted to discuss this. The issue was with Ice Cube and the fact that his contract with Black America was pushed from being a nonpartisan issue to a partisan issue. The long and short of it is, listener, we agree. I want to issue a clarification for the record. On last week's episode, I did not make it abundantly clear that Ice Cube had approached both parties with his contract with Black America. Trump and the Republicans sat down with Cube, while Biden and the Democrats asked to table it after the election. So thank you for checking me on that one. Also, I think that although we we made that joke about Cube switching it up a bit and playing a cop in movies, we still absolutely believe that he has the right to build programs and advocate for the Black community. Lastly, I want to quote something that this listener shared in their note to us. Quote, long story short, I see Cube as a leader and I believe he did what he did with a lot of integrity. It's just disappointing that the result is a media circus and to make it appear as though he aligns with Trump in any way. End quote. If any of you ever disagree with one of our takes, we really want to hear from you. Send us a DM on Instagram at the drip TO. Any thoughts about that, Curtis? Any, any thoughts about our take on, on Ice Cube last week and the contract with Black America? You know, I, I think I, I, I hear what that listener is saying, and I, I thank him for his, his feedback. Um, I think what's being missed, though, in, in how it was characterized just now is the fact that Ice Cube, you know, whether or not he was, you know, coming to this from a place of integrity, I, I, Ice Cube didn't do the work. Mm. He didn't he, you know what what I what I heard in response to his push is that if he had reached out to the women leaders mm-hmm. who have actually been doing the work and and making progress, he wouldn't have ended up with cake in his face, which is exactly what happened to him. So I, I get it. Yeah, he probably was coming at it from a place of you know what with good intentions, but you, you gotta 
there's a way to go about it and he didn't do it right. That's that's the reality, right? So yeah. intention versus impact. Yeah. 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 Moving on to massive police reform in Peel. It has been a pretty tumultuous year west of the city this year with the killings of Jamal Francique in Mississauga in January, DeAndre Campbell in April in Brampton, and the very high-profile shooting of Ijaz Chowdhury in Mississauga, all three of whom were killed by police. Mm. We've talked about these wellness checks on this podcast before and how they are increasingly turning into a series of unfortunate events. But an article written earlier this year by Brampton and Mississauga mayors Brown and Crombie states, quote, Peel Regional Police responded to 15,741 mental health-related calls and an additional 22,249 suicide attempts in 2019. That's a lot. It's a ton. This does not include countless interactions while underlying mental health conditions exist. So these numbers are going up and there is a need for, for police to be more prepared. Well, the Peel Police and the Ontario Human Rights Commission have signed a historic agreement that will create legally binding policies to end racism in policing. As part of that agreement, the OHRC will, quote, provide human rights guidance to Peel Police and its board to adopt holistic and binding remedies to address what Black and Indigenous communities have been calling for massive reform, and the defunding of police services that terrorize us. A commitment was also made to engage with members of the Black community and other racialized communities in Peel Region before finalizing the legally binding agreement. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is massive. What are your thoughts, Curtis? Well, you know, this is definitely monumental. It's definitely very good news for those in Peel. You know, I guess what we need to see now is the same agreements being forged between the Ontario Human Rights Commission and other cities or other uh, police boards or police services. Um, I'm also really interested. I, I honestly, I don't know much about um, Chief Durapa. Right. So I don't know if he's actually a good guy or a bad guy in this. Uh, I think patients, you were saying that he's been in, he's been in his seat for less than a year now. Is that right? Yeah, just about a year now. Just about a year. So, I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is I hope if he's a good guy, I hope he's able to successfully implement this. Um, and I hope that he's not replaced by somebody who's going to add roadblock to this transformation, you know? So I guess we'll have to wait and see how it goes. 
Speaking of police, there's some calls for concern coming out of Ottawa. Supporters of Abdi Rahman Abdi, a Somali-Canadian man who died after a violent arrest by two Ottawa police officers in 2016, reacted with a mixture of sadness and outrage after one of the officers was acquitted of all criminal charges on Tuesday. Constable Daniel Monshin was found not guilty of manslaughter, aggravated assault, and assault with a weapon in a judgment rendered by Justice Robert Kelly of the Ontario Court of Justice. Kelly ruled the Crown failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Monchin's actions caused Abdi's death. One of his supporters, and this was Faria Ahmed, the outgoing chair of the Justice for Abdi Rahman Coalition, a grassroots group of activists and community members formed in the days following Abdi's death, says that, quote, today was nothing short of catastrophic. To recount, for those of us who may have gotten a little fuzzy around this case, Abdi, who struggled with his mental health, died of cardiac arrest following a violent interaction with Monshin and another constable, Dave Weir, on the front steps of the Hilda Street apartment in Hintonburg, where Abdi lived. Weir chased Abdi from a nearby Bridgehead coffee shop after reports that Abdi was assaulting women. Monshin had been called to the scene as backup and punched Abdi several times in the head upon arriving while wearing reinforced or plated gloves. So I want to ask you, Curtis, how is Monshin, if not guilty of, of manslaughter, how is he not guilty of aggravated assault or assault? I, I can't I can't not see that. I mean, what this tells me what this reinforces is that it doesn't matter what white cops do. They're going to be let off. There you go. You know, I I wanted to jump to another story coming out of Ottawa that, um, by the way, I think a lot of folks wouldn't have known about. I can only speak for myself. I didn't know about this by perusing the news, which I do all the time, all the time. The only reason I knew about this was, was because I listened to another podcast by CBC where they spoke about it. So the disturbing news that we have coming out of Ottawa is unfortunately a reminder of two other stories we know all too well from the summer about Reed Skorczynski Paquette and Brianna Taylor. A no-knock entry called Dynamic Entry in Canada was executed October 7th by Ottawa police on a 12th floor apartment building. As a result, Anthony Oust, a 23-year-old young black man, fell to his death. His stepfather, grandmother, two younger siblings, and his girlfriend were all home at the time. Police were given the green light by what I must say is a deranged judge, because who would allow a no-knock warrant to be performed under those circumstances? Anyway, police thought Anthony had a gun and cocaine. None were found. And for the record, the whole point of these dynamic entries is to catch an alleged criminal in the act, as opposed to allowing him or her to destroy evidence. Anthony was in his younger brother's bedroom where he had been staying since March when he was released from jail because he was deemed low risk at the onset of COVID. And by the way, the reason he was arrested in the first place was because he was found in a car with two other friends. The friends, if I understand correctly, it was the friends who had the drugs and the weapon, but because he was also in the car, he was charged too. Honestly, patients, I, I didn't even know that no-knock warrants were a thing in Canada. Like, apparently, they're bread and butter for police, considering how often they happen. In Ontario alone, they happen around 400 times a year, fam. Back in February, Ottawa Judge Sally Gomery ruled that, quote, police can't operate from an assumption that they should break in the door of any residence that they have a warrant to search, 
end quote. And she alluded to that thinking being, quote, based on a casual disregard for established authority about how search warrants should be executed, end quote, since they were only meant to be used in extenuating circumstances. Veteran defense lawyer Mark Ertel, who was the reason Judge Gomery handed down that ruling in the first place, expects that Anthony Aus' death will now be a turning point. We certainly hope so. For the record, only 5% of SIU cases result in charges. They also don't have the power to compel officers to testify or hand over their notes. Maybe they should. Here's my opinion on anything involving no-knock warrants. If you want to surprise someone, you know, you, you don't want them to destroy any evidence. I think they need to be a suspect in a murder investigation. I personally do not think that you should bust down my doors, scare my children, scare, in this case, Anthony's stepfather, right? Like somebody had had a couple of strokes in advance of of this event. And like there's an ecosystem that this person is operating. Which by the way, which by the way, the police knew. They knew very well exactly who was in the home. They should have known better. I don't know why you want to enter this person's apartment, traumatize their younger siblings, just because you think they might have cocaine. I, I Maybe that that's just me. Honestly, I, I, I feel like there are other ways to pursue justice. And I do feel like... I read something that said that the Ottawa police in particular overuses the no-knock warrants. Mm. And in overusing this, this, this system, you really do limit accountability. Agreed. Agreed. And, it, you know, it's exactly why Justice Gomery or Judge Gomery handed down the ruling that she did. Because as you pointed out, whether it's Ottawa or other police forces in Ontario or across Canada... They're just doing it way too often and doing it in circumstances that don't warrant it. It's So, look, defense lawyer Mark Ertl, certainly you and I, we're hoping that I, – I really do hate the fact that death has to lead to change. But we're hoping that Mr. Aus' death leads to some serious reform here. Particularly, maybe we should just be removing no-knock warrants. I mean, I don't know. I think I just went a, f- a step further than you did, Patience. Maybe they shouldn't be a thing in the first place. Well, I mean, facts. But then it, it, I even go a step further because if we if we go back to the Regis Korchinski Paquette case, mm-hmm. that that was you know she they they did allow the police into the into the the, the home. Mm-hmm. But what happens when even when they are kind of allowed into the home? What happens then? Yeah, you know. Yeah. How, how how consistently are you terrorizing this group of people to the point where, you know, people are, are jumping off of balconies yeah. or falling off of balconies uh, because you're in their midst? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, as I, as I read the story, I, I just think it's really important that we, that we acknowledge the incredible weight that black people have been under in the past few months in particular that has contributed to our, reduced mental health and and just quite frankly our ability and maybe i'm speaking personally here but our ability to not be shook every time we see cops mm-hmm. okay i just i just want to make it really clear that it is not um 
it does make sense that this young man decided that he just didn't want to deal with the cops. He didn't want to go back to jail. He didn't want his family to continue to be terrorized by the system. And he decided to end it. It makes sense. It makes sense. And it's fucked. I I just had to put that out there. Rest in peace, Anthony Ost. In news that's disappointing but definitely not expected, the Hockey Diversity Alliance, or HDA, led by Evander Kane and Akeem Aliou, has decided to part ways with the NHL because the league appears reluctant to implement concrete actions to advance the conversation around anti-black racism, like the NBA has. The HDA had a list of concrete steps it wanted the NHL to take, like a commitment to fund grassroots programs for racialized people, funding for impactful social justice initiatives, anti-racism education, targets for promoting black individuals and businesses, and rule changes to make the culture of the game more inclusive. It seems all the NHL could offer, though, was more performative bullshit. In a statement, the HDA said, quote, We've waited many months for a response to the common sense HDA pledge we proposed, and it's clear that the NHL is not prepared to make any measurable commitments to end systemic racism in hockey. The HDA will operate separate and independent of the NHL and authentically implement necessary education programs and changes to the sport and seek to be role models for the youth in BIPOC communities who want to play hockey, end quote. Thoughts on the NHL and their performative allyship, patients? I mean, are we surprised? I remember when I was first watching uh, P.K. Subban play in one of his like earliest seasons, or everyone was really excited about uh, a black uh, NHL player, but like a really strong, like critical um, player in in the league. And I remember people like continuously calling him a monkey. Yep. Like people were just completely explicit about their their distaste of blackness in the league and since you know after pk his two brothers have joined him in the league and it, it kind of isn't getting better so i'm not surprised at I, well I'm, I'm actually slightly surprised that they would even perform allyship <laughs> given given their lack of 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 um consequences or or yeah consequences uh when people have been blatantly racist and and terrorizing their athletes so unlike the other and i would say perhaps every other major league sports team has a majority racialized people but even tennis is becoming increasingly racialized i think the nhl kind of wants to keep the great white hope alive. <laughs> Fuck them. I don't care. Like, I just want to say, like, protect the Subans at all costs, you know? Like, I, I don't really give a fuck. Well, you know, final thoughts on this whole thing is that it's just too bad because Canadian-Jamaican Quinton Byfield, a 16-year-old from Newmarket, just became the highest black-drafted pick in the NHL after his second-round pick by the LA Kings. This could have been an opportunity to attract black people to the game. But here we are. Some of you may have been following the news about formerly black-owned Toronto radio station G987FM, The Way We Groove. After no black investors made a bid, the station was sold to Niti P. Ray, a South Asian and experienced investor in the broadcasting industry with radio stations in Ontario and Quebec. Ray, for his part, has said, quote, while I prepare to undertake the task of bringing much needed stability to G987, 
the long-term mission remains the same, as envisioned in its original CRTC application. It is to serve the Caribbean, African, and Black communities of the GTA. I hope he means that. I guess we'll have to wait and see. In other news, this week, a Hennepin County judge drops a third-degree murder charge against former officer Derek Chauvin in George Floyd's murder. But the second-degree murder charge remains. A hearing was held on the motions in September, the first time all four defendants appeared in court together. The judge's ruling states the jury should decide if the state of Minnesota has proven the guilt of the former officers, writing in his summary that the state has met the burden of probable cause in the charges against Thao, Lane, and Quang. The exception was the third-degree murder charge against Chauvin. Cahill wrote the charge can, quote, be sustained only in situations in which the defendant's actions were imminently dangerous to other persons and were not specifically directed at the particular person whose death occurred. So is this bad? Not really. CNN legal analyst Laura Coates explained the third degree murder charge was odd to begin with, saying that it wouldn't have stuck. Any thoughts on this one, Curtis? Yeah, you know, my thoughts are that, like you just pointed out, this isn't a bad thing. It's pretty logical based on what you just explained. So I get it. My comments are more so related to the fact that the CNN senior legal analyst is no longer Jeffrey Tubin, who likes to have fun jerking off on Zoom with his colleagues. So you, you do know Jeffrey Tubin, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was last week. When did it come out that he's jerking on like- what? This week, yo. So he, um, oh, he was, he, he, I think it's the New York Post that he was at. And um, they were, he and the, the team, they were doing, they were running like models for the debate coming up, right? Yeah. And this guy, basically, he thought he wasn't on camera and he started jerking off. He put everybody on mute, started jerking off. So obviously everyone's like, yo, what the fuck? And, you know, it became a thing. And now he's on- paid leave or whatever, or at least that's the last thing I, last thing I heard. But yeah, this guy this guy's a sicko. <laughs> Moving on to global news, we have, of course, more updates on the U.S. election. Right now, the polls still show Biden winning by a 10-point margin, and we can have faith in U.S. polls this time because things have changed since 2016. Back then, pollsters didn't include education as a factor in surveys, and that's been cited as a key reason the polls were so off since only half of national pollsters weighted education in 2016, according to the American Association for Public Opinion Research. That failure meant Clinton was boosted artificially since they weren't getting enough responses from those without college degrees. Yet those same voters supported Trump over Hillary by 7% across the U.S. and by 37% of white, non-educated voters alone. No surprise there. Now that education is being considered, we should be good. This week's presidential debate was quite a circus. Did you watch it at all, Curtis? Okay. I saw some of the highlights the following day. Okay, okay. Here's the highlight reel. According to Trump, quote, nobody has done what I've done for Black Americans with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. Possible exception, end quote. Biden accused the president of cozying up to a quote, unquote, thug, (laughs) saying that Trump legitimized North Korea by meeting with Kim Jong-un. 
Trump's efforts to defend his repeal and undermining of the Obama-era Affordable Care Act proved to be a liability as Biden hammered his efforts to strip coverage from tens of millions of Americans and his lack of a plan to cover those with pre-existing conditions. I love that. Yeah, which I should add includes thousands of Trump supporters who would have been stripped of their coverage. Trump held no punches with regard to Biden's inaction, saying, quote, why didn't you do that four years ago? Even less than that. You were the vice president. You keep talking about all these things you're going to do, but you were there just a short time ago and you guys did nothing, end quote. So I would say that Biden won the debate, but I mean, Trump is not lying down and taking it. He is bringing up some confusion. And I think that confusion may lead to some people being a little bit distracted, but let's let's not be distracted. We're voting blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, that, that full stop. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we can't say we're voting blue. We're not voting, but Abraham Lincoln—he freed—he he literally freed this. Like I don't, he freed black people. In what way have you freed anyone? Frankly, right. I mean, not even talk about black people. Right. But like, you haven't even helped your own supporters. What exactly are you talking about? Like, can you can you go into detail? In other global news, things got worse this week with regards to Nigeria and the case of hashtag end SARS. This week, there was an event that will go down in history as the Leckie Tollgate Massacre, as well as other instances of violence against peaceful protesters across the country. According to the Associated Press, the number of deaths is hard to tell, but is currently estimated to be between 12 and 78 uh, with about triple that amount having been seriously injured. So let me give you the rundown of what happened. Protesters were peacefully blocking the the toll gate that connects Lekki, which is a part of the island, to mainland Lagos, singing things like the national anthem and, you know, the, the, the kind of, of peaceful songs that kind of bring solidarity to a group. At around 12 p.m. that day, the Nigerian government had announced that they were going to lock down uh, the island and ask for uh, curfew to begin at 7 p.m. Uh, a lot of people who were at the toll gate did not get that information because it was delivered so late. And at seven o'clock, they turned off all of the streetlight. So people, the protesters were in the dark and the military came onto the, the scene at Lucky Tollgate and shot into the crowd for hours people were running trying to find safe cover most were successful but uh, a lot of people you know were finding that as they were trying to make their way to the hospital the roads were blocked as they were trying to make their way to their homes the roads were blocked and they were trapped the president of nigeria addressed the nation and blamed the young people for the military attacks what kind of wow Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and 40 other civil society organizations have jointly called for immediate and thorough investigations of the allegations of the unlawful killing and use of excessive force against protesters in Lagos on the evening of October 20th, 2020. That government needs to go. Another really sad story coming out of the continent uh, is coming from Congo. Armed groups have been brutally attacking innocent civilians, causing more than 50,000 people to flee their homes. 
A number of these civilians are children with no parents or guardians. At the center of this armed conflict is wanted warlord Guidon, uh, who has continued to prey on civilians in areas under his control. He should be arrested and his Congo army backers should be investigated and prosecuted for using his abusive militia as a proxy force. Guidon, who remains at large, leads the NDCR rebel group, whose fighters are notorious for torturing and executing civilians. To learn more about this fight, you can search the hashtag Congo is bleeding. In addition to this, groups in South Africa, Liberia, and Namibia are calling for an end to gender-based violence and rape. In these countries, thousands of young women and children are being raped to the point where in Liberia, their president, George Weah, has declared rape a national emergency. That is... I... Wow. That's crazy stuff. It's like, it's crazy. And I can't help, Curtis, but to tie this back to the desperation that is coming as a result of COVID. Because we are feeling it here in Canada, but the world over, the economy has slowed and people are just like not really hoping. Yeah, not coping. Exactly. So jumping to questions for you, our audience, how do you feel about the new binding agreement between the Ontario Human Rights Commission and Peel Regional Police? Should other police forces follow the same example? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift Teal. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E, for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.